So that was Thomas Tallis, and in this case, Libranos. And Tallis was a composer for the Tudors. He lived all 80 of his years under the Tudors. And we are, surprisingly, I can't believe it, honestly, uh, to the middle of the quarter. And uh, that's amazing. As times now go, they seem to move both fast and slow at the same time. But here we are on Podcast 9, which I'm calling Dissolution and Succession. So let's get on with that, shall we? The pilgrimage of grace succeeded, or, well, so it seemed. Recall that the 10,000-strong Lincolnshire Rising had evaporated relatively quickly, and this owed in no small part to the threat of a military response by Charles Brandon, the Duke of Suffolk. Suffolk was not just a loyal supporter of the monarch, but he had, in fact, for some time been married to the king's sister, Mary Tudor, and as a result was, for a while, the king's brother-in-law. Led by Suffolk, Henry's military could muster a response to the 10,000 of the Lincolnshire Rising. This was enough. But with 40,000 having risen for the Pilgrimage of Grace, Brandon was facing a different matter altogether. Marching on the so-called pilgrims with their banners and badges displaying the five wounds of Christ had gained an important support in the North. This included leading members of the church, along with a number of nobles who remained largely conservative in the religious views. Generally speaking, historians who have analyzed the pilgrimage of grace consider the event the largest rebellion in Tudor history in terms of economic, spiritual, and political matters. But given that matters of the day, we do we can do away with this tripartite analysis. We don't need to break it down into these three components. And instead, I think here we can focus simply on the economic and what I'm going to call the religious or politico-religious. We can simply call it religious, though. On the economic side, it's straightforward enough. Poor weather and poor harvests had been an issue. And these exacerbated concerns over religion and change to the church and the north. In light of problems with crops and an apparent dearth of grain, it was often easiest to turn to the church. The church could be expected to hold stores of grain or to give in a charitable fashion to the poor. They were there to deal with what shortcomings might arrive. And this reliance on the church was important, this reliance on church on charity. It was something that was considered to be mutual. So you could expect the church to take care of you or monasteries, but you would also in turn be expected to take care of them. They would hold events, festive events, such as church ales, which were times when the laity would gather and drink. As you know, abbots have a tendency to brew beer, and they would gather and the abbots would sell their different stores and wares, their beers, and this money would in turn go into help support monasteries and churches. It would raise funds predominantly for the parish within various towns in England. So we get this element in which the economic side already shows itself to be religious. But so we might get on to the second side, to the matter of politics and religion which we're going to break down here and fold together simply to consider in terms of religion. Suffice it to say that the issue of a divorce with Catherine and marriage to Anne came down in part to how one interpreted the sacrament of marriage. 
But this too, of course, was a matter of preminar, of the supplication against the ordinaries, of the recent royal supremacy and the Treasons Act. If all political and legal, and in many cases from Parliament, these were religious matters. These were matters that came down again to the sacrament of marriage and what it was. And the so-called pilgrimage, as its name implies, really was about religion. Speaking on the, of the intent of his followers, Robert Ass claimed, and this is a quote, We have taken for the preservation of Christ's church, of this realm of England, the king our sovereign lord, the nobility and commons of the same, the monasteries in the north parts. They gave great alms to poor men and laudably served God. And by occasion of the said suppression, the divine service of Almighty God is much diminished. Ask's focus on preservation, on the preservation of Christ's church, is here significant. As a barrister, as a lawyer of London, he knew a thing or two about semantics. And his reference thus has as much to do with the physical state of monasteries and abbeys, of dissolution, in other words, as it does about the preservation of the sacraments. He was really referring to both. And thus we are here dealing with two central matters, really, with dissolution and, indeed, the Ten Articles, the recent Ten Articles that we saw in our last podcast. I do urge you to take a look at the Ten Articles if you get a chance. They are posted this week. They're tremendously important matters contained within them. Article 6, for instance, attacks images and plants the seeds for iconoclasm, claiming that objects are fine so long as they assist worship, but they should not be worshipped themselves. This would be idolatry. So this is an act against idolatry that also promotes iconoclasm, the destruction of such images. Article 4, for instance, confirms transubstantiation, claims that the body and blood are present during the Eucharist, not only symbolically, but spiritually, so that when the host is elevating during Mass, wine and the host itself, the bread of communion, actually are physically thought to become the body and blood of Christ. They are present, not just symbolically. So you get a sense these acts are hugely important for how they define what's happening in faith. But if we were to boil down the articles, all ten, to get to their very heart, the single most important component would be the idea of justification by faith alone, of sola fide. Faith, as opposed to confession and good works, was the determining factor of salvation. And the act reads as follows, that justification is remission of sin and reconciliation to God by the merits of Christ. But good works are necessary. And it's a bit confusing, but good works, which were crucial to the church, were not seen as the pathway to salvation, but rather were here taken as a reflection of salvation. This was a path toward assuming that some had been elected, that faith was the basis of salvation as opposed to confession and good works. It's that election for salvation that matters. Did one need a priest for confession? No. One could confess to God directly themselves through prayer. Did one need to perform charitable works? No, not necessarily. And that's even if doing so suggested that they were faithful and thus had salvation on pathway. One might see how this undermines social values and might be a matter of concern to conservatives. 
one might see the glimmers of a future Protestant and even Puritan anxiety about figuring out election, written in the matter of faith as a pathway to salvation. We will get back to how this works later when dealing within the church, within the church of Elizabeth's reign, of the Presbyterian structure that was growing within Elizabeth's church, of the Calvinism that would in time become labeled Puritanism. For now, for the winter of 1536 and 1537, the gathering of Robert Ask and some 40,000 pilgrims was enough to prompt Henry, by way of Charles Howard, Duke of Norfolk, and the Earl of Shrewsbury, to enter into negotiations. Concessions were agreed upon, perhaps because Norfolk was sympathetic to the cause. It was agreed that participants would be granted pardons for what amounted to treason, and that the monasteries of the north would be spared, and most importantly, that a parliament would be called and held at York within a year. And so with their objectives seemingly met, the pilgrims disbanded. Although it soon became apparent that Henry had no real intention of making concessions, and thus by February 1537, a new uprising was already brewing. But this time, by this point, Henry was prepared. Arrests were made, and leaders rounded up. Ask and 215 others were arrested on charges of treason. And by the end, 216 ringleaders were to be executed, including Ask, abbots, monks, and some pilgrims themselves. And this is where we can get back to Tyburn for a moment, to Tyburn Tree. Various fates met those accused of treason. Some were hanged and headed or beheaded. Some were hanged and bowled, as in disemboweled. Others were hanged, bowled, and quartered. Being hanged, drawn, and quartered was without question the worst fate. It would involve repeating, it would involve repeated hanging as torture for recantation, hopefully, and then disemboweling, a removing of the intestines and potentially other organs while alive. And then finally, another hanging for death. And then a quartering a chopping off of the limbs and a removal of the head so that they could go to the corners of London to be put in baskets. Or in the case of the head, it would often be sent to London Bridge in the south side where Trader's Gate would have it sitting on a pike. This would be a fitting warning to anyone else thought they might rise up and dare create a second pilgrimage of grace. And another point, just while we're here. Have you ever heard of falling off the wagon. This has to do with Tyburn also. One was said to fall off the wagon or be off the wagon on their way to Tyburn because there was a pub on the way to Tyburn where one was allowed to stop and have a final drink. So being off the wagon meant that one was probably having their final drink before death and getting back on the wagon meant that they were proceeding on to be hanged. Just a little note. But so with these executions ended the single greatest internal threat to Henry VIII and his Reformation. And so too marked the beginning of what could be a dissolution in earnest. If you'll recall, in 1536, dissolution involved at first smaller houses with incomes under 200 pounds. Now for the next five years, other major targets would come into focus and their attack would shape not only England's Reformation, but how, in step, the king sought to defend himself from outsiders. 
1537 and 1538 marked a second major year in terms of dissolutions, with Cromwell issuing injunctions to numerous major abbeys and priories, and they were expected to respond to these with reforms. But in many cases, these reforms were understood as simple components on the way to full dissolution. And so cathedrals, abbeys, and priories were confiscated, endowments and pensions seized, and contents in many cases looted or taken into possession by local people. Rather than simply be sold off, Cromwell's initial idea was to refound much of the confiscated lands, to use the spaces and buildings to add to annual royal revenue, to make the monarch, in other words, incredibly wealthy. This would increase annual income by nearly 150,000 pounds. This is a remarkable sum for the time. Think in terms of what would now, with pensions still being upheld, be something in the line of 50 million pounds to 100 million pounds. Many lands were converted. Some were sold off initially. Others were left to deteriorate. With their plate taken away, their rude screens chopped up, cannibalized, looted, and used by locals who took the stone off to their own farms and houses to build other structures. Cromwell had, in short, bankrolled the king, but the dissolution also earned the king new enemies. Finally, in 1538, efforts were made to end pilgrimages to monastic shrines. These were hugely important shrines that could, in some cases, be seen to hold relics from the past. And these pilgrimages were popular with people not just in England. They were popular people all over Europe who would go on pilgrimages from country to country, sometimes as a central component of their faith, as a piece of devotion, as a single most important action of their lives. And this was, this, this ending of monastic shrines, the breaking point for Rome. So that by the 17th of December, 1538, Pope Paul III excommunicated Henry from the Catholic Church. And there was, it seemed, no turning back at this point. And Henry, at this point, all this while, had still been on the market for a new bride, a fourth wife, to be specific. Not exactly a prime candidate anymore for marriage to a Catholic, he and Cromwell had looked to more receptive audiences, and especially ones that might come with political benefits. Cromwell made sure to direct the king's attention to the Protestant elector states of Germany, and in particular to member states of what is known as the Schmalkaldic League, an alliance between Lutheran electors to defend one another in case of an attack by the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. Charles was again, if you will recall, the uncle of Queen Catherine of Aragon, and was himself a devout Catholic. Excuse me, nephew. A prince eager to see religious unity established in Christendom, and starting with, potentially, the German elector state. So he had a real interest in attacking these opponents, these Lutherans within the states that elected him in the first place. Henry's entry into marriage with a princess from Dusseldorf, say, would thus stand to benefit England significantly. It could not only see the king wed to a new queen, but it could enter England into an alliance with an already capable military Protestant alliance. It would slot England in, in other words. This was of great interest, seeing as England, the island, had broken with Rome. Cromwell convinced Henry to consider Anne or her sister, 
and in the end it was Anne of Cleves who sounded best. And so Henry requested that one, well, he requested what any prince at this time would, and that was to send a capable portrait painter to observe and report on this potential marriage. And so he chose one of the best of his day, which was Hans Holbein the Younger, who might produce what would have been probably the best and most capable likeness of Anne of Cleves. And Holbein did as much. He sent on to Henry a miniature, which Henry, by all accounts, was very happy to see. Anne was, at this time, all of 24, half of Henry's 48. And so the marriage alliance proceeded, and Anne came to England. But when she arrived, Henry did not find her quote-unquote so fair, as reports had suggested, or indeed, as portraits had suggested. He was apparently furious at both Cromwell and Holbein, and soon requested that Cromwell find a way to avoid the marriage altogether. But this could not be done at this point. And so Anne and Henry were eventually wed in January 1540. But the king, still not being pleased, refused to consummate the marriage. And after some time by July, both Anne and Henry finally came to an agreement, a rather large settlement that included granting Anne of Cleves Anne Boleyn's former castle. A conclusion could thus be met, and the marriage was annulled. Anne would stay in England, but she would not be a queen. An annulment came, but this did not come before Thomas Cromwell could take the blame for an orchestration that would end up being his undoing. Like Anne Boleyn before him and Wolsey before her, Cromwell had amassed a number of enemies at court. He had to date been capable and outmaneuvering these enemies, of surviving by keeping himself close to the king. But the matter of Anne in 1540 provided a critical window. It was a moment and opportunity that was readily capitalized by his opponents. One of Cromwell's main opponents at court was Thomas Howard, the Duke of Norfolk, the same Duke of Norfolk who had granted more than a fair share of promises to the pilgrimage of grace. And the same Duke of Norfolk, who was the head of a family that was known to be Catholic. Norfolk and his conservative allies seized the moment by pushing into the limelight Catherine Howard. This is Norfolk's own niece. And with an annulment in terms of marriage to Anne of Cleves in July, there came an opportunity for marriage to Catherine Howard just days later. It was a month prior to this that the axe fell again in London. Prior to the new marriage, Cromwell had already faced attainder, arrested on charges that included his support of radical sectarians, of beliefs such as the opposition to infant baptism, of anabaptism, and denial of transubstantiation. On the 28th of July, Cromwell was beheaded on Tower Hill. And that same day, Henry married Catherine at Outland's Palace in Surrey. Henry was 50 and Catherine 19. So went another loyal servant, perhaps Henry's most capable. Cromwell had, of course, helped to push through numerous acts in the Reformation Parliament, and he had helped to secure Boleyn, and indeed done away with her then, when the time came. But he had also helped to achieve the Royal Supremacy Act, the Treasons Act, and later, of course, to dissolve the monasteries between 36 and 40. 
He thus achieved what Wolsey and Moore could not, and all the while men made Henry tremendously wealthy. But Cromwell was now gone, and Catherine, for her part, would not last terribly long either. It was widely known that the young Catherine loved Thomas Culpepper, a courtier who she had even planned to marry before Norfolk and his allies put her in the limelight with Henry. By 1541, Catherine was being accused of liaisons with Culpepper. And here, from a period of relative quiet, returned Henry's other Thomas, Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Culpepper was sent off to die at Tyburn by December 1541. And Catherine would meet her own beheading two months later in February 1542. This orchestrated by Thomas Cranmer, in large part, as he came back to finally do away with a strong Catholic alliance that was in the rising at court. Henry's problems mounted in the wake of Catherine's death, but before they became dire, he took his sixth and final wife, Catherine Parr. Much less a marriage of lust, it seemed a matter of preservation and balance. Significantly, Parr would help to return the king's daughters to the fold with a third succession act, establishing Mary and Elizabeth to the line in the wake of Edward VI, or who would become Edward VI. This was, in a sense, a cleaning act. Also, in 1543 came a temporary alliance with Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, and this was made in order to wage war against that perennial enemy of England, France. By summer 1544, Henry was back on the continent at war at the Siege of Boulogne, Success would see the English hold a small town for the next five and a half years. This would be costly, however. Henry spent much of what Cromwell had secured, selling off lands that were intended to keep royal coffers full. Money had grown so short that coinage began to be debased. So silver would be cut to the point of hammering more coins, but putting into them copper. And as these coins circulated... They would wear thin and reveal the copper, so that Henry gained the nickname very near to the end of his life as Old Copper Nose. As these coins would wear, his nose would go first, and you'd see the copper within the coin. And Henry had by this time started to show his final years. All of the jousting, partying, and feasting had caught up to him. A wound on his leg from a jousting incident in 1536 would not heal. It kept festering. Rumors suggested, although these are not substantiated, that he had grown syphilitic. But the rumors in and of themselves are interesting. Others have attributed what was going on late in his life to other diseases. His waistline had ballooned to a full 54 inches. He was seen as highly erratic. He would be known to burst out into fits of anger. He was moreover covered in recurring wounds. He had grown immobile. He was incapable of climbing stairs and instead had to be hoisted up in a large dish that was fit for his body. He likely had terrible gout. Henry would die on the 28th of January, 1547, at just 55 years of age. Crowned on the 20th of February, at all of nine years old, would be Edward VI, the boy king who had come to the throne of England. 